This episode is devoted to the physical evidence presented by the prosecutor at Oscar's trial. We've tried to summarize as little as possible and just let the trial testimony and lab reports speak for themselves. All of the evidence witnesses you'll hear were testifying for the state, not Oscar. This is the whole story on Powell's evidence. This is defense attorney Donahue questioning Alice Clifton at trial, July 7th, 1976. Okay, now, Mr. Clifton later on that morning left the home. Is that correct? Yes. Can you tell me about what time it was when he did leave the house? Somewhere around 6.30 or a little later. Can you tell me or describe for us, please, the clothing that Mr. Clifton was wearing when he left your home that day? He had on a pair of navy blue pants, a pink and beige plaid western shirt, one pullover sweater. Do you know what type of shoe wear he had on? Yes, he had on his brace. Did you lay out Mr. Clifton's clothes for him that day? Yes. Now, Mrs. Clifton, this is exhibit number five, or not five, S, I'm sorry. Is this the shirt you laid out for your husband that morning? Yes, it is. Exhibit number R, are these the pants that you laid out that morning? Yes. And exhibit number four, the white sweater, is that the one he wore that day? Well, it looks like it, yes. Okay, Mrs. Clifton, did you buy your husband a white sweater for Christmas the day before? Yes, I did. Similar to the one that I just showed you? Yes. All right. So Mr. Clifton left the home somewhere around 8.30 a.m. When, when was the next time you saw him, if you did see him that day? I think it was a little after 10, sometime between 9.30 and 10, I guess. All right. And where did you see him? At a house on Garden Street in Vesalia. Here in Vesalia? Yes. And who was with you? Who was with me? Yes, ma'am. My sister, Glenda Dula. All right. Now, when you arrived at the Garden Street home, would you describe for me the clothing that Mr. Clifton was then wearing? He had on the navy blue pants, a white sweater, the western shirt, and his shoes. About how long did you stay at the Garden Street property? Probably 45 minutes. And then you and Mrs. Dula left? Yes, we did. Now, when was the next time you saw your husband? A little bit after five. Okay, and where were you when you saw Mr. Clifton at that time? At my sister's, Glenda Dula's. Okay, and that when you saw him a little after five on December the 26th, was he still wearing the same clothing he had on when he left the house that morning? Yes, he was. All right, and subsequently the four of you went out to dinner, is that correct? Yes. And Mr. Clifton was still wearing the same clothing? Yes, he was. And after returning the Dula's to their home, you and Mr. Clifton proceeded home? Yes. And what did you do after you got there? We went to bed. And did you and Mr. Clifton remain in that house until such time as the sheriff's office arrived sometime early the next morning? Yes, we did. This is Petty John's interview with Glenda Dula, January 2nd, 1976. Now, Mrs. Dula, when you first saw him over on the Garden Street address, where he was working, uh -huh. could you tell me what he was wearing at that time? He had on a pair of navy blue polyester slacks and a white pullover sweater, but I can't tell you what kind of shirt he had on. I can't remember that. Was he wearing a hat? No. Then you didn't see him again until he came to your home shortly after 5 o'clock. That's correct. When he came to your house shortly after 5 o'clock, was he wearing the same clothing that you saw him in at 10 that morning? As far as the sweater and the pants are concerned, yes. Again, I can't tell you what shirt he had on. I didn't notice. But you're positive about the sweater and the pants. The pants, yes. The pants and the sweater, I definitely know that they were the same ones. 
Did either the pants, particularly the sweater, reflect that they may have been roughed up or tugged at or had any blood on them? I didn't see any blood on anything. I did see a couple of pulls on the sweater. Just a thread pull? Well, you know, like you catch a loose, you know how the sweaters are loose-knit. You might catch them on a nail or something, and it pulls the thread through. This is Petty John's interview with Avery Dula, January 2nd, 1976. Do you remember specifically what he was wearing at that time, or any part of his clothing? I remember that nothing about his clothing except his sweater. He had a sweater that I gathered his wife had bought him for Christmas, and he was complaining about how he didn't like pullover sweaters because they were just too tight around his neck. And at the time, I remarked, well, it won't last very long anyway because your pen is sticking through it out of your shirt pocket. The little push button part of the pen was sticking through his sweater, so he reached and pushed it back inside his sweater. But as far as the rest of his clothing, I can't really remember. Did he have on a hat? No. And the sweater was what color, did you say? I would say it was an off-white color. This is defense attorney Donahue questioning Avery Dula at trial, July 7th, 1976. All right, do you recall what, if anything, Mr. Clifton was wearing that day? He was wearing a pullover sweater, I would say, sort of an off-white sweater. Do you recall any other, any of the other clothing he had on? No. And I'm showing you exhibit number four. Does this appear to be a similar type sweater to the one that Mr. Clifton was wearing that date? Yes. And did you see Mr. Clifton again on December 26th? Yes, when I came in from work. And about what time was it when you came in from work? I don't know the exact time. Well, the approximate time. Approximate time of about five to ten minutes after five. All right, when you arrived home, who was there, if anyone? My wife was there, Mrs. Clifton was there, and Mr. Clifton. Do you recall what, if anything, Mr. Clifton was wearing when you arrived at home? The same white sweater. But you do not recall any of the other clothing he said he had on, is that correct? No, I didn't. Then sometime later, the four of you left your home and went to dinner, is that correct? Yes. And about what time was it when you returned from dinner? Approximately 9.30, I'm not sure. Okay, and Mr. Clifton returned you and your wife to your ranch, is that correct? First we stopped by Mr. Clifton's house and picked up my son, who was staying there with his daughters while we were having our dinner. Then he took you... Then he brought us home. All right. And about what time was the last time that you saw Mr. Clifton on December the 26th? It had to be somewhere around between 9 and 10. This is Petty John's report of interview with Carter, dated January 6th, 1976. When I left the Clifton home on Friday, December 26, 1975, about 7.30 to 8, Mr. Clifton was up, but not then dressed. When he came home that afternoon, about 4.30 p.m., he was wearing a white pullover sweater and I think brown pants. He wore no hat or jacket over the sweater, and I cannot recall what type of shoes he was wearing. He did not change clothes after he came, and when leaving, about 15 minutes later, he was wearing the same clothing he had on when arriving home. There was nothing unusual about his clothing that he was wearing, such as being dirty or bearing spots of any kind, ruffled or torn up. His shoes were not muddy, leaving no tracks on the carpet. This is Petty John's report of interview with Danny Bolin, dated March 24, 1976.
Boland stated that when Clifton contacted him the two occasions on December 26, 1975, he was wearing a heavy knit pullover type long sleeve sweater, white or off-white in color, a pair of dark double knit slacks, and black Oxford type shoes. He stated he was positive about his wearing black shoes with a moccasin-type toe and positive he was not then wearing cowboy-type boots. He did not recall his wearing glasses at either time. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Boland at trial, July 7, 1976. Mr. Boland, how was Mr. Clifton dressed that day? He had on a, a white sweater and dark kind of a double knit pants. What kind of shoes did he have on? What kind kind of shoes? Yes, sir. I think they were uh I think they were black shoes. Okay. Were those shoes that he were those dark shoes he had on? Could they have been dark brown? They could have been. Defense attorney Donahue questioning Bolin on redirect. Now, as a matter of fact, Mr. Bolin, didn't you expressly tell Mr. Pettyjohn that you were positive that Mr. Clifton was wearing black shoes? Yeah, I thought he was wearing black shoes, yes. The day you saw him on December the 26th, was he wearing a pair of black shoes like the one he has on now? No, sir. What were they? What's different about them? I thought they were just kind of tie-up flat shoes, kind of like army shoes, you know? Like work boots? It's about seven, eight months, sir. Uh, they were dark shoes. They were black, I thought. As a matter of fact, you described them as a moccasin-type shoe, didn't you? Well, they were black. It seems like they were black flat shoes with a little seam and tie shoes. Like an Oxford? Uh, yeah, I guess so. This is defense attorney Donahue questioning Clifton at trial, July 6th, 1976. All right, now a moment ago, Mr. Clifton, you said when you left the house or when you dressed, among other things, you put on this sweater, which is exhibit number four. This is your sweater, is that correct? That's my sweater. Okay, what were you wearing in the way of shoe gear? What I have on now. What do you have on now? My brace and a pair of slippers. Those were the same shoes you were wearing that morning? Same shoes I was wearing that morning. Now, Mr. Clifton, I will show you exhibit number 58, which is a pair of cowboy boots. Are these your cowboy boots? Yes, they are. Okay, these were taken from your home? Yes. After I was in custody, they, they went to my home and took them. All right. Now, on December the 26th, did you at any time wear these boots? No, I did not. This is a note from Morton in the crime lab. Phone call received from Sergeant Hensley, January 8th, 1976. Clothing suspect was wearing on date of crime, one pair dark brown pants, one light tan or cream colored shirt, one white high neck sweater. There seems to be little to no disagreement about what Oscar was wearing that day. The white sweater he had been given for Christmas the day before, a pair of dark blue double knit slacks, a pink and beige plaid western shirt under the sweater, and black shoes that fit with his leg brace. No mention of cowboy boots, light-colored pants, or glasses. He never changed clothes during the day or washed any clothes when he got home. This is a report from the California Department of Justice, Fresno Regional Laboratory, dated July 6, 1976. 
Evidence and Indicated Source. On July 6, 1976, Detective E. Chambers of the Tulare County Sheriff's Office submitted the following items. Suspect's clothing. Blue pants, blue shirt, tan corduroy jacket. Summary. Blood was not found on any of the submitted items. This is TCSO Report Johnson, December 26, 1975. 1615 hours, 1229.75, received the following clothing from Detective King. One, one white knit sweater. Two, one pair Montgomery Ward's underwear, Brent brand, 34 to 38. Three, one pair of Fruit of the Loom underwear, small, 30 to 32. Four, one pair of boots, size 7.5D, brown in color. Five, one pair of brown slacks. Six, one pair multicolored pants, Levi's, stay pressed. Seven, one pair olive green coveralls. Eight, one white sweater, possible hair adhering to it. Nine, one white turtleneck shirt. Ten, one pair Fruit of the Loom undershorts, 34-36. Eleven, one shirt Edwards of California brand. Twelve, one Kings Road brand jacket, brown in color. 13, one pair of size 9 cowboy boots, brown in color. 14, one pair of size 7.5D cowboy boots, brown in color. 15, one kitchen knife, brown handle. 16, one pair Fruit of the Loom undershorts, 34 to 36. This is Morton's lab report, March 25th, 1976. Examined white sweater. Fragrance of perfume or cologne. Soiled. No evidence of bloodstains. Lab report for March 28, 1976. Item 16B, 27 cm or 10 and 5 inch blonde hair from left sleeve of MGM Mark V white sweater, item 16. 5 cm distal and 3 cm proximal removed and mounted. This is report from forensics consultant Parker to defense counsel Donahue, dated June 1st, 1976. Item 13. The 10 inch long blonde hair does not appear to be included in the Institute of Forensic Sciences inventory of items received. I will need to make further inquiries about this to learn where the hair was found and what possible significance it may have. It was apparently found to be human hair by microscopic comparison. It could not be stated whether it was that of the victim or the accused. There also appears to be no further interest in pursuing this hair identification further. Blood grouping of the hair may be attempted, so there may be an inference made that the hair is that of a suspect if it has type O or the victim's if it is type A. This is Defense Attorney Donahue questioning Morton at trial, June 29, 1976. Okay, now, Mr. Morton, I will show you exhibit number four. Have you ever seen this sweater before? There's the exhibit number. We examined a sweater. It appears to be this one. Our tag is on the evidence bag. That is the one. It's the sweater. We did examine it. All right, now, for what purpose did you examine this sweater? To see if there was any transfer evidence that could be associated with the victim. Like blood? Blood, hairs, fibers. All right, did you find any blood stains on the sweater? No. Did you find any fibers on the sweater? A hair was found on the left sleeve. Did you find any fibers? No significant fibers. What about dirt? Is this, was the sweater about this condition as far as being clean when you examined it? Yes, it was. Okay, and no place on this sweater did you find any blood stains of anyone. Is that correct? That's correct. All right, sir. Now, item 16, 
One white sweater, MGM. Do you know, sir, if that white sweater is the same as the white sweater you have previously examined a few minutes ago, which is exhibit number four, or is it a different sweater? It's that sweater. It is this sweater? Yes. All right, sir. And the result of your examination or the examination of that sweater was negative? Negative for blood. One hair on the left sleeve. Which was not identified with anybody. Which was examined and compared with the victim's hair, the suspect's hair, and the hair of the children of the suspect. I assume, then, that there was no particular identification. It didn't belong to any one of them? It was not similar to any of them except the victim and Relinda Clifton. This is Morton's forensic report on ABO blood typing done on the hair found on Oscar's sweater. It's dated June 22nd and June 23rd, 1976. Sample 16B, hair from sweater sleeve, type O blood. Sample 48, Oscar Clifton's blood, type O. Sample 56, Donna Jo Richmond's blood, type A. We're all tired of hearing about Oscar's white sweater, but it's important. He was wearing it all day, yet it did not have one spot of grove mud or blood on it. Donna's body was found covered in blood, mud, dirt, leaves, and sand. No expert testimony is needed here. Common sense is enough to know that the person who stabbed Donna over a dozen times in the wet black dirt did not walk away wearing a clean white sweater and beige shirt. Both the dark brown slacks TCSO thought Oscar was wearing and the blue slacks he was actually wearing were tested and were negative. At trial, Morton makes mention of a hair being found on the sweater sleeve that was indistinguishable between that of Donna and one of Oscar's daughters. That was true upon the microscopic examination of the hair, so Morton then conducted ABO typing on the hair, and it was determined to belong to a type O individual. Donna was type A, so she was positively excluded as being the person who left that hair on Oscar's sweater. This is not what the jury was told, and it was very damaging. It appeared to be the only direct physical evidence tying Oscar to Donna. Looking at the timing of the ABO testing right before trial, it's unclear if this was disclosed to Donahue. It was conducted after the defense forensics expert visited Morton's lab, and Donahue did not address it at trial. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell cross-examining Oscar Clifton at trial on July 8, 1976. Mr. Clifton, those white painter's pants that you can take off and then throw away, are those the ones you were wearing the day you killed Donna Jo Richmond? Sir, I stated I did not do what you claimed. I had nothing to do with it. No further questions, Donahue. That's all, Mr. Clifton. The court. You may step down. From a legal standpoint, there should have been objections and a motion for a mistrial after Powell made this statement. It had no basis in fact, was highly prejudicial, and could not be cured by an instruction to the jury to just disregard it. In fact, Donahue said nothing and the jury was left believing that somehow the accusation must be true. The incredibly painful reality is that the painter's pants were sitting on the floor of Oscar's truck when it was taken into evidence. They are clearly visible in the photos we have posted to our website. Prosecutor Jay Powell knew exactly where those pants were, in the police evidence room. Unfortunately, Oscar didn't see those photos until after the trial. Those pants were not used in Donna's murder and discarded, but the jury didn't know that.
This is Defense Attorney Donahue questioning Johnson at trial, June 28, 1976. Now, Mr. Johnson, there were some shoe tracks around the bicycle, weren't there? As I recall, yes, there were. Do you have any photographs of them? No. I believe I stated I didn't take any photographs of them. Because Sergeant Bird told you not to? I don't recall Sergeant Bird told me not to. Well, did anyone tell you not to take pictures of shoe tracks around there? I don't recall. Take a look at the photograph you have right in front of you. Yes, sir. It's a picture of a bicycle, right? Yes, sir. You mean to tell me that you weren't interested in looking for a footprint for the little girl who got off that bicycle? I didn't say I wasn't interested. I said I was photographing tire tracks. You said it was secondary, right? I said that if they got in the photograph, it was secondary. You mean to tell me, sir, that you weren't looking for footprints around the bicycle? As I said, I made the decision not to photograph the footprints because I was advised that they were similar to the brothers. You were advised by whom that they were similar to her brother's shoes? Sergeant Bird. So, for that reason then, footprints were secondary, is that correct? They were secondary in the photographs, sir. Secondary to what? The tire tracks which I was photographing. Okay, did you take any other photographs other than right there by the bicycle? Of tire tracks? Of anything. Yes, sir. I took photos of tire tracks away from the bicycle and of the, uh, I believe, just north of the bicycle. How about footprints? No, sir. I took no photographs of any footprints. None at all? Except those that were accidentally with the tire tracks. Okay, did you take a photograph of what supposedly was a boot print? Not at that scene, no. Some other place? Sergeant Hensley would have taken those. At the scene where the bicycle was found, because Sergeant Bird told you that these footprints are similar to her brother's, you didn't take any photographs. Is that correct? That's correct. How many shoe tracks or footprints did you observe around that bicycle, if any? I didn't make a count. Did you see more than one? Did you see any footprints there? Yes, sir. Did you see more than one set of footprints? Yes, sir. How many did you see? You mean sets, uh, different types? Right. Uh, two that I can remember. Two sets of footprints, right? I believe so, yes. What color, what type of shoe was the, what type of shoe did the victim wear? She wore a high platform type shoe. All right, referring to the bottom of the shoe, did you recall the design? I believe it was flat. No rims? Not that I can recall. Okay. Did you find Donna Jo's footprints there at the scene where the bicycle was found? I don't believe I did. Well, now, either you did or you didn't, right? Mr. Johnson, did you find any footprints where you found the bicycle that you could identify as being Donna Jo's footprints? No, sir. I don't believe I did. Did you or did you not find any footprints there that you could identify as Donna Joe's? I don't recall. Well, then you didn't find any that you could identify as being hers, did you? I don't recall. Let me put it this way, Mr. Johnson. If you would have found some footprints out there that belonged to the little girl. Yes, sir. You would have noted it in your report, wouldn't you? Yes, sir. All right, read your report. There's nothing in here. I stated I did not take any photographs out there. Therefore, I did not put it in my report of the shoe tracks. You said you couldn't recall. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Now read your report and see if you can recall it. It's not in there.
then you did not find any shoe prints out there that you could identify with the victim, could you? No, sir. Did you find any other shoe prints out there other than those two sets you talked about? It's not in my report. That's not the question. This isn't the question, sir. Yes, sir, I did. Did you photograph those? No, sir, I did not. Well, other than Sergeant Bird telling you that two sets of tracks out there were similar to her brother or somebody, those shoes the brother was wearing, why was it that you did not take any photographs of the other shoe prints that you found out there? Because there was numerous people out there at that time. I felt the majority of them would probably be those people. Well, Mr. Johnson, were there any other tire tracks out there? There was tire tracks from Deputy's vehicle, my vehicle. How about the people that worked in the field? Didn't they? Were there any tire tracks of theirs? I wouldn't know, sir. Well, then how do you know they were tracks from the vehicles belonging to the sheriff's office? Because at the time I arrived out there, the tracks were right behind the sheriff's vehicles. Okay. Is this an orange grove? Yes, sir. And you mean to tell me that there weren't any tire tracks coming down between those trees anywhere in that area? I didn't say there wasn't. Did you look for them? Yes, sir. Did you take any photographs of them? No, sir, I did not. Why? I felt that the tire tracks close and near the bicycle were of the evidentiary value. The ones further away were not. All right, so we do not, you didn't take any pictures of any footprints? No, sir. And any tire tracks that you didn't feel were connected with this situation, you ignored them, is that correct? That's correct. Well then, there were other tire tracks present, there were footprints present, but you picked and chose the ones you wanted to photograph. Is that correct? Yes, sir. In other words, somebody else could have been in the grove with a car, with a pickup, the tire tracks could be there, were there, and you simply chose to ignore them. Is that correct? The tire tracks were there. They were not photographed. All right. Where were these tracks that were not photographed? They were... There were some located on the dirt drive running north and south of the scene. Mr. Johnson, did you take any plaster casts of any of those tire tracks there at the scene where the bicycle was located? No, I did not. Did anybody do it that you know of? There were plaster casts made at a different scene. And where are they? I believe they're still in possession of the man who made them. Am I correct, Mr. Johnson, in that you picked and you chose which footprints, which tire tracks, which prints you would photograph? I picked tire tracks in the area of the bike. The other two tire tracks that were photographed were pointed out to me by various officers. Then there were other tire tracks out there that you did not photograph? This is correct. There were other footprints out there that you did not photograph? Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Johnson, isn't it a fact that when Mr. Bird showed you that invoice book, the whole investigation was concentrated right there? You mean in the area of the invoice book? That's right. Yes, sir, it was. And despite the fact that there were other footprints and other tire tracks, it was right there where everything was concentrated? Yes, sir. And you did not find one footprint from Donna Jo Richmond, did you? No, sir. Did it ever, well, let me rephrase it. While you were out there making your investigation, didn't you finally come to a little question in your mind as to how Donna Jo Richmond got off that bicycle? Powell, objection, court, sustained. Donahue, since you did not find a footprint, any footprints that you could identify with Donna Jo Richmond, didn't you wonder how she got off the bicycle? Objection, sustained. Donahue, 
Was there anything in that area, this area right here, was there anything in this area by the bicycle on either side of it that indicated to you any impression on the dirt that somehow or other she had stepped off her bicycle? As of this time, I didn't, I don't remember any impression. Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Johnson on redirect. Counsel asked you, isn't it true that you focused on the invoice book in taking those pictures? Didn't you also focus on the bicycle and the invoice book, that area of the scene? Yes, sir. Defense attorney Donahue questioning Johnson on recross. But you never dusted any bicycle for fingerprints, did you? It's not in my report, so I must not have. Mr. Johnson, did you or did you not dust the bicycle for fingerprints? I don't recall. All right. Mr. Johnson, you have your report right there in front of you. If you'll look at it, it will tell you that there is nothing in there that said you did. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Then you recall that you did not dust the bicycle for fingerprints, didn't you? I don't recall if I dusted the bike. Well, let's put it the other way. Did you dust the bike? If you had dusted the bicycle and if you had found Oscar Clifton's fingerprints on it, it would be in your report, wouldn't it? It would be in my report or Sergeant Hensley report. Right. Let's put it this way. It would have been in the sheriff's office report, correct? Yes, sir. All right. Now take a look at your report. It's not in my report. Just a moment, sir. And you tell me if you found Oscar Clifton's fingerprints on that bicycle. Did you find Mr. Clifton's fingerprints on the bicycle? No, no, I did not because you didn't even dust the bicycle to find out if there were any prints there. This is defense attorney Donahue questioning Hensley at trial, June 29th, 1976. Now, these photographs were taken on which day, the ones you took? The ones I took were all on the 27th of December. All right, and what did you, were you out on road 176? Approximately 12 o'clock noon. And was there an investigating officer there? Yes, sir. And who was that? There were several detectives. Detective Tom McKinney was present. As I recall, Sergeant Bird was present while I was there. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that one of the investigators indicated which tire prints he wanted photos taken of down on Road 176. As I recall, the investigating officer advised me that these are the photographs which he wanted photographed. Yes. And who was that investigating officer? As I recall, it was a combination of both Sergeant Bird and Detective McKinney. All right. Then later on, you went out to see where the victim's body was found. And again, I believe you testified that you were directed to take certain photographs by an investigating officer. Is that correct? Basically, this was a combination of both my own judgment and Detective McKinney. Okay. Was Sergeant Bird out there? Yes, he was. At the scene? Did Sergeant Bird give you any instructions as to what he wanted you to photograph? He did give me some instructions as to some areas to photograph. Yes, sir. This is a report from defense forensics expert Parker to attorney Donahue, dated April 23rd, 1976. The comparison between the suspect's shoe or boot with the impression at the scene near the body, the subject of the black and white negative image enhancement, in the opinion of Mr. Morton has certain common class characteristics. It is the purpose of the enhancement studies to make a stronger opinion and as a maximum show that the boot belonging to the suspect 
to the exclusion of all other footwear, made that impression. The inference then is that the suspect was at that location during the two or three days preceding the crime. Plaster casts were apparently not made of the boot wear impressions or tire tracks, and if true, is not in accordance with good practice. There has then been a loss of potential for third-dimensional comparisons and loss of evidence. The best photographs would be far from complete for documentation of footwear or tire tracks. These are Morton's lab notes, dated April 6, 1976, 10.30 a.m. Ken Parker stopped in after calling at 10.30 a.m. to discuss evidence in case offered to turn over all evidence he wanted at this time. We had completed all exams with exception of image enhancement and comparison with boot and hair exam for ABO. Explained results of our exams of tire tracks, footprints, pubic hair of victim, and semen associated with them. Lack of blood on clothing of suspect. Offered to let Parker examine any evidence here with an explanation from me as to our findings. He had no interest in examining the evidence at this time. Defense Attorney Donahue continuing cross-examination of Morton. With reference to exhibit number 45, is this the only boot print or shoe print that was submitted to you for an attempted identification? No, there were other prints submitted. These, the others that you were, that were submitted to you, were they supposedly taken around the scene where the victim was found or do you know? I believe they were. Okay, well, I assume you've already looked at them, haven't you, sir? Yes. Well, then, you did or didn't. Did you find any characteristics, any specific characteristics that you could identify as being Mr. Clifton's? No, I did not. Okay, well, what we're really saying here, sir, is that any boot that had similar wear could have made the impression that you've been asked to identify. Any boot with the same type of heel with similar wear, yes, sir. Okay, the same type of boot, the same type of heel, the same type of wear. Any boot like that could have made this impression. Isn't that what you're saying? That's correct. All right, now what did you do, if anything, to try to identify the sole print of this boot? An attempt was made to compare the impression of the sole, but there was no substantial amount of detail present in the impression that could be related to the boot itself. And the problem of uh, created by shadows cast in lighting... Uh, make it difficult to identify the minute kinds of impressions that would be found on a soul. As I understand it, that is one of your problems in trying to identify this boot print because there was, as I believe you testified, there was very limited detail because of the focus and the lighting, isn't that? That's correct. Did you, let's see, I believe you had a boot submitted to you for comparison? Yes, that's correct. Did you make any other tests with that boot, such as soil samples? No, I did not. Did you make any tests for blood or blood stains? I believe Mr. Grubb in our laboratory examined those boots for blood. My question, sir, is did you? No, I did not. Was it done under your direction? Yes. Do you know the results of those tests? Yes, sir. They were negative. Negative. And what does that mean, sir? That means there was no indication of the presence of blood. All right. What about... And there were no, no soil samples involved? No examination of soil samples were made. Now, since you couldn't do anything with the sole, can you tell where the sole ended in this toe? No. You couldn't. 
So you can't tell us how long that shoe or boot was. Is that correct? That's correct. And it is correct that you can't tell us whether this was a boot or a shoe. That's correct. Mr. Morton, other than the footprints that you testified concerning being in the exhibits, were there any other shoe prints submitted to you? No, they were not. Did you know of the existence of any tennis shoe marks concerning this case? No, I did not. Specifically then, sir, these were the only footprints and shoe or boots that were submitted to the Institute of Forensic Sciences. Is that correct in this case? The ones we have already talked about? Yes, sir. Yes, that's correct. All right, sir. Now, also in connection with the boot marks, did you make or did anyone submit to you plaster casts of that, of the marks? No. Or any footprints that were submitted to you? No, they did not. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Morton at trial on June 29th, 1976. And Mr. Morton, have you previously testified as an expert with regard to tire tracks? Yes, I have. Have you previously testified as an expert with regard to footprints? Yes, I have. And have these been in Superior Court in California? Yes. This is Defense Attorney Donahue questioning Morton on cross. Now, in regard to, in addition, Mr. Morton, to photographs of tire tracks at various locations, did anybody make, as far as you know, any plaster casts of the tire tracks that were submitted to you? No one else made plaster casts. I made plaster casts of of several of the impressions at the location of the sanitary napkin on, uh, if I can find that location... Road 176. Road 176. I made several there, uh, several days later after the, uh, they were located and the original photographs were taken. No other plaster casts were made of, to my knowledge. Okay, now what did you do with those plaster casts? I took them back to the laboratory and used them for preliminary examinations and have them with me. All right, now those plaster casts, well, let me rephrase it. Isn't the taking of plaster casts and making of plaster molds, however you term it, a more expert way of comparing the tires with the prints as opposed to photographs and the tires? Isn't it a better practice, Mr. Morton, to obtain plaster casts of the tracks as opposed to just photographs? I advise that both photographs and plaster casts be taken. But as a result of taking the plaster cast, and as a result of being the photos that were taken, it's your testimony that there were no specific individual characteristics found to, by which you can say, that the tires on Mr. Clifton's trucks are the tires that made these tracks at these various locations. That's correct. There is zero evidence that Oscar ever wore a pair of cowboy boots on December 26, 1975. This is clear from all the original witness statements. He had one pair of black moccasin-type shoes that fit with his leg brace, and he was seen wearing those shoes all day by everyone who happened to notice his footwear. The testimony of Hensley and Johnson shows that they were specifically directed by Bird to take photos of certain tire tracks and heel marks and ignore all other tire and shoe evidence. Morton took plaster casts of the tire impressions at the underwear scene and concluded they did not match Oscar's truck. The tire tracks at the bike and Neil Ranch scene were poorly lit photos that could not be matched to Oscar's truck and were never compared to any other vehicle for exclusion. No grove workers, law enforcement vehicles, or property owners were checked. The heel marks were only found at the Neil Ranch, and the photos were useless for comparison purposes. It was not disclosed at trial, but the photos were flown down to San Diego to a specialized photo lab in an attempt to have them matched to Oscar's boots. No match was possible. 
To be clear, we're talking about matching the size and shape of heels. There were no brand marks, and the size of the boot could not be determined since no sole mark was visible. There was absolutely nothing distinguishing about the marks. There was no attempt to match these heel marks to anyone who worked on the ranch or to law enforcement officers who were wearing boots at the scene. It was so confusing it likely just created more doubt in the minds of the jurors. Maybe the tracks could have belonged to Oscar. Could they be sure? Without clearer exclusion testimony from the defense, it probably looked like some kind of incriminating evidence somewhere in all of that circular testimony. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Pearson at trial on June 29, 1976. Mr. Pearson, what is your occupation? I'm a citrus farm advisor with the Cooperative Extension Service branch here in Tulare County. It's part of the University of California. And how long have you been employed as the citrus farm advisor? I've been with the university 23 years, uh, 10 of them here in Tulare County. And before the last 10 years when you were here in Tulare County, were you also engaged in citrus work elsewhere? Yes, in the county of Orange. And does your employment, in your employment, you work mainly with citrus or exclusively? I work mainly with citrus. I have some other office responsibilities and soils and things like that. All right, now let me show you what has been marked as plaintiffs number 10 and 11 in evidence, and also what's been marked as plaintiffs number 28 for identification, a little plastic jar. Have you had occasion to see these items before? Yes. And in the two photographs, have you examined those photographs? Yes. And have you also examined the contents of the jar? Yes. All right. And from your examination, have you formed an opinion as to the what kind of leaf it is that is depicted in the photographs and in the jar? They're citrus leaves, and it's my opinion that they're orange leaves. Defense Attorney Donahue questioning Pearson on cross. Any particular type of orange leaf, Mr. Pearson? That I can't determine. A Valencia leaf is just the same then as a navel leaf, is that correct? The, from the standpoint of the picture, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference, no. What about the sample in the little bottle there? This is, a, a, at this point, somewhat dried up. And when did you first observe it, sir? Last week. The first time that you ever, the first time that you saw this leaf, which is contained in exhibit number 28, was last week? Yes. If you had been shown the sample that's contained in exhibit number 28, say, within a day or two after it was first removed from whatever type of tree it may have been, would you have been able to give us an opinion then as to whether it was a navel or Valencia orange leaf? Possibly not. Well, if I removed a whole leaf from a Valencia tree and brought it to you to look at, could you identify it as being either a navel or Valencia? Depending on the time of year, I probably could. Okay, let's take December. This particular one here? That's what we're talking about. That's the time of year. If you had it, say within a day or so after it was picked or removed from the tree, I should say in December, could you have given us an opinion then? The difference between a Valencia and a Naval, probably not. Then may I ask you, sir, you say in your opinion you do believe it's an orange leaf? Yes. Could it be another type of citrus leaf? The opinion it's an orange leaf is based on its color. The nature of the margins that show on the photograph, and they sort of eliminate other citrus varieties. 
We don't have a whole leaf contained in exhibit number 28, do we, sir? No. We only have a part of it. Yes. Correct. Is there a possibility it could be some other type of leaf? Well, I can... It's not certain varieties of citrus. I'm sure of that. It has all the characteristics that place it in the group of oranges. Okay, you stated that you know it's not certain varieties of citrus. Correct. Which ones, in your opinion, is it not? I don't consider it to be a lemon leaf because of its color, mainly. I'm doubtful it's a grapefruit leaf because it, again, the margin characteristics, again, because of the color. I doubt it's a tangerine or tangerine hybrid. Thank you, Mr. Fearson. There was a leaf found stuck in the passenger side mirror of Oscar's truck when it was taken into evidence. DCSO said it was an orange leaf, but the state's expert sounded far from certain. It's impossible to guess how many citrus trees there are in Tulare County. Not only is the entire area covered in citrus groves, but every yard, driveway, and street edge has citrus as well. None of the grove roads associated with the bike scene or Neil Ranch were narrow enough for the trees to touch a vehicle driving by. It's not really clear where TCSO thought Oscar had picked up the leaf, and it obviously couldn't be matched to a particular variety of citrus, let alone a unique grove or tree. Clifton lived on a ranch, as did the doulas. He also backed up his truck to the front door of the Garden Street house on the 26th, right up the front walk between two trees. The one area of this case we've been dreading the most is addressing the issue of sexual assault. It feels like we're disrespecting Donna by discussing this. However, it was such a huge aspect of public perception of the case, it can't be avoided. As you've heard from the autopsy summary, there was no evidence of any kind of a sexual assault. Without going into detail, the exam was very thorough, and there were no injuries or other signs of sexual activity. They took many swabs and immediately checked them all for spermatozoa, and every sample was negative. This was determined on Saturday night, so about 24 hours after her bike was located and a few hours after her body was found, the authorities knew that there had been no sexual assault. One of the most disturbing aspects of this case is the fact that TCSO and Prosecutor Jay Powell intentionally spread knowingly false information about Donna being the victim of a brutal sexual assault. This was the front page story in the Exeter Sun on Wednesday, December 31, 1975. The front page has a photo of Donna and underneath it says Donna Richmond, the Exeter victim of a sadistic slain. The story starts, counts of homicide, kidnap with intent to do bodily harm, rape, sodomy, and failure to register as a sex offender were made Tuesday morning in the Exeter Justice Court against Oscar Archie Clifton, 35. Clifton was accused of the murder of 14-year-old Donna Jo Richmond, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Donald Richmond of List, Exeter. District Attorney Jay Powell said he will ask for the death penalty for Clifton, who was arrested Saturday about 6 p.m. after Donna's mutilated body had been found by a field worker at 1.30 p.m. in an orange grove near Road 196 and Avenue 288. How and why was Oscar charged with rape and sodomy on that Tuesday? Jay Powell knew on Saturday night he would never be able to support those charges in court because they were false. The charges were eventually quietly dropped but not before that story was set in the minds of just about everyone in Tulare County. 
The failure to register as a sex offender was also bogus and dropped, but again, not before the false accusation permeated the case. As they prepared for trial, the authorities refused to believe that Donna had not been sexually assaulted, as if her kidnap and brutal murder weren't enough. When all of the autopsy swabs came back negative for semen, they took a small sample of Donna's pubic hair, collected an autopsy, and sent it to a forensic graduate student, Blake, at Berkeley. He was working on research into identifying the presence of seminal fluid in the absence of spermatozoa. Another portion of this same sample had already been examined by the forensics lab in Fresno. It had been found to be negative for spermatozoa, and ABO blood typing detected only type A blood, which matched Donna's menstrual blood. Oscar was type O, so if his semen was present on the pubic hair, it should have produced both spermatozoa and blood type O. The only reason for lack of spermatozoa would be if Oscar were sterile, which he was not. The only reason for lack of type O would be if he were a non-secretor, meaning he only expressed his blood type in his blood, not in other bodily fluids. Frustratingly, Oscar was never tested to see if he was a non-secretor, something the defense should have had their expert do. They also should have taken steps to prove that he was producing spermatozoa. All we can say for certain is that Oscar had not had a vasectomy and had three natural children. Type O is the rarest blood type for finding non-secretors. Only 12% of O's are non-secretors. In fact, the insistence on finding a sexual assault should have ended there. No positive findings from autopsy or swabs and no evidence on the pubic hair of another person, let alone Oscar. Instead, they gave the sample to Blake and essentially told him they needed him to find semen on the pubic hair. To that end, Blake issued a report citing proof that seminal fluid was present. This evidence was allowed into trial without any fry hearing to prove that the testing method used was sound and properly accepted in the scientific community. In fact, it was not sound at the time and is even less sound now that more information is known about false positives. For instance, this test is invalidated if the sample has been in the presence of water, like lying overnight in a wet, muddy field. While such testing can be used as a presumptive test for seminal fluid, the unexplained absence of spermatozoa would prevent this scientific conclusion in court today. Coupled with the lack of the suspect's blood type, the presumption would be that none of the suspect's seminal fluid was present on the victim. In no circumstance can such testing ever be referred to as proof of the presence of seminal fluid. However, what the jury in Donna's case heard was that there was absolute scientific proof of semen on Donna's pubic hair, and Oscar could be the contributor. This was left unchallenged by the defense, and Oscar was convicted of attempted rape based solely on this graduate student's testing. There is just one more point to make regarding the issue of semen. We've seen references to Sergeant Bird repeating that he saw semen dripping down Donna's backside when he arrived on the scene. This observation seems strange on the surface, since she had been in the grove for nearly 24 hours. Looking at the crime scene photos, there's an obvious explanation. When Donna's body was found, she was covered in fresh, whitish-colored tree spray. Jesse Renteria covered Donna's body in some type of pesticide as he drove next to her. There was no discussion of this at trial and no accounting for the possible effects of this chemical on the pubic hair testing. However, it clearly added to the gossip and mythology surrounding the issue of a sexual assault.
This is Defense Attorney Donahue cross-examining Grubb at trial, June 29, 1976. Mr. Grubb, I'm showing you Defendant's Exhibit Q, which is now in evidence. I ask if you have ever seen that knife before. Yes, it's marked with my initials. Is that the knife that you examined at the Institute of Forensic Science? Yes, it is. And when did you make that examination? I'll have to check my notes. That was made on February 12th of this year. All right, would you tell me what you did as far as your examination is of the Exhibit Q is concerned? First of all, I opened up the knife, exposing all the blades, examined them under a stereo low power, low power stereo microscope, looking for any obvious blood stains. None were found. And as I recall, there were several spots that in my opinion could have represented small amounts of blood and they were tested with a benzidine reagent, which is a presumptive test for blood. And the results were negative, indicating that those small spots were probably deposits of rust in pitted areas on the knife. All right. Now, assuming that this knife had been used to inflict wounds upon a victim approximately 17 times, in order to clean it, that knife, would a simple wiping of the blade be sufficient, in your opinion? It depends on how much blood there is to start with. If the blood is down inside the handle, it's very difficult to remove all of it. If it's simply on the blade, it's rather easy to remove all of it. Okay, but remember now, my point is that this may have been used on 17 different occasions on the same person. In your opinion, do you think you could clean all the blood that was accumulated simply by wiping off the blade? Did you dismantle this knife? No, I did not. You didn't take the handle off? No, I did not. What did you do to ascertain whether, let me rephrase it, in the bottom of this knife, there appears to be dirt or debris of some kind. Is that correct? Dust collected? Yeah. Did you, was that debris or dirt? Well, let's rephrase it. What shall we call the stuff that's in the knife handle? Debris. All right. When you received the knife, was the debris there as it appears here today? Yes. What, if any, test did you make of the debris on the side of the knife, on the bottom of the knife, to ascertain whether that debris contained any blood? First of all, I looked inside using a, a stereo microscope and removed any dark brown staining and tested that with directly with the benzidine reagent, although I didn't put any of the reagent inside the knife. Various smaller areas were removed and also probably did a small dry swab of the inside of the handle. Well, do you think that with uh, the test that you ran, is there, had there been any blood on this knife, would it have been revealed by it? Yes, it's a sensitive test. Okay. Did you know at the time that you made the test that this knife might have been involved in this particular action? All I knew is it was a piece of evidence in this case. That's all I knew about it. Well, when you did you receive it with this tag attached to it? Yes. It was your sole purpose in testing this knife to try to find a trace of blood. Blood? Blood. And for fibers or hair. Right. Belonging to whom? Well, that I wouldn't know until I found it. I mean, if I found blood, then it would be my purpose to determine if it was human and then to try to type it. Okay, to whose blood? It could be compared to the victim. Well, now, Mr. Grubb, wasn't that the sole purpose of your investigation? Yes, that would have been significant in this case. Merely significant, sir? Yes, significant is a good word. All right, let's... Supposing that you found both blood, you found debris, and you found tissue, and you found hair, all of which you could compare and say, this is comparable to the hair of Donna Richmond. 
isn't that wasn't that the purpose of your investigation yes to try and locate such evidence yes you can find photos of oscar's pocket knife on our website these photos have a measurement scale and you can see that the largest blade is about six centimeters long that's less than two and a half inches this is also a non-locking blade a folding pocket knife any real pressure on the blade straight down would just fold the blade back into the handle cutting the holder's hand or just break it off you can see from the condition of the blade that the tip is also undamaged not only did grubb fail to find any evidence of blood hair fibers or skin on oscar's knife the handle area was full of dust and debris indicating that it had not been scrubbed the photos were taken during dna testing in 2002 and it was completely disassembled needless to say donna's dna was not found on the knife this knife was repeatedly referred to as the murder weapon with absolutely no proof whatsoever it was a knife donna was stabbed with an undetermined object that's as much proof as the state had in an effort to save time and frustration we're going to summarize trial testimony and tcso reports in regards to the issue of oscar making inconsistent statements about his alibi immediately after his arrest king said that oscar stated that he was at bill rose's or with bill rose between 3 and 4 p.m on the 26th haldwin also stated that oscar said he was with bill rose or gone by bill rose's house between 3 and 4 p.m bird's testimony was the same it seems that oscar correctly told them he was working at bill rose's house between three and four the officers all seemed to have made initial assumptions about what that meant they first assumed oscar meant at bill rose's residence not his investment property they also assumed that when he was at bill rose's house that he was asserting rose was there too when questioned specifically all three tcso officers agreed that oscar said he was at rose's house but still asserted that oscar had lied because he wasn't with rose donahue needed to do a much better job of pointing out that just because the officers had been confused that didn't mean that oscar had lied or changed his story part of the reason oscar didn't clarify this the night of his arrest was because he had already invoked his right to counsel and specifically refused to waive his miranda rights that didn't stop TCSO from questioning him, which they all eventually admitted at trial after some debate over whether it was general or detailed questioning. This seems a stupid point to argue since any questioning was a violation of Oscar's constitutional rights. So, after an unknown amount of questioning at the station, in custody, Oscar just told them he had an alibi between 3 and 4. He was working at Bill Rose's house. Since they weren't supposed to be questioning him, no recording of this interrogation was produced at trial although oscar claimed it had been taped instead the judge over donahue's objection allowed the tcso officers to present their hearsay statements about what oscar had allegedly said even at that there was nothing damaging or inconsistent but it likely confused the jury and allowed the officers to call oscar a liar in open court There was one final piece of evidence against Oscar. It was not allowed at the trial, but was widely discussed in the newspapers and court of public opinion. Oscar had a conviction for attempted rape of an 18-year-old girl in 1965. Oscar always maintained his complete innocence in that case and appealed his conviction, even though he served almost no time. Because this case is still, 
to this day, often cited as conclusive evidence of Oscar's guilt in Donna's murder, we're going to address it. We've spoken to the victim in that case, so we feel that we have a good idea what her version of events is, at least today. While we're not arguing Oscar's innocence or guilt in that case, we do want to clear up some misinformation contained in an appeals opinion that has been widely circulated. Some of the misinformation comes from the fact that the opinion relied on a summary of events presented by the prosecution in their argument that the conviction should not be overturned and are slanted to favor the state. However, according to the victim, the case was flawed from the beginning. Briefly, the victim had been sunning herself on a riverbank and was just standing up to leave when she was approached by a man in blue swim trunks. She said something he did startled her and she fell as she started up the hill. A man in a car on the bridge above saw that, thought the man had attacked her, and called the police on his car phone. The police arrived 15 to 30 minutes later, found Oscar in blue swim trunks swimming in the river with his car parked nearby. They identified him, but he was not arrested. A couple of days later, Bob Bird, who was then a Farmersville police officer, not a TCSO deputy assigned to the case, came to the girl's house. Her mother explained that she worked with Oscar's mother at the packing house. Oscar had just been coming over to say hi and didn't mean to scare the girl. The mothers had talked on the phone and nobody was upset. Neither the girl nor her mother wanted to press any charges and asked Bird to leave. Soon after, the girl says she was again approached by Bird, this time at her married sister's house. Bird told the sister that Oscar had killed another girl that same day and was going to take the girl under the bridge and rape her and kill her like he'd done the other one. The sister was intimidated into taking the girl to the police station to identify Oscar, which she did. The girl says that Bird prepared a statement, which her sister told her to sign. It included injuries the girl said she did not have, a conversation where she was told to go under the bridge, which she says did not occur, and details of being held down with Oscar on top of her, which she says never happened. The girl unwillingly testified to these events at trial, then immediately moved out of state and never returned. She said she was contacted by Byrd in 1976 regarding Donna's case, and she refused to cooperate in any way. Nobody from Oscar's defense team or the media ever contacted her. There was also an assertion that Oscar had made lewd statements to a housewife earlier that same day. It was not that same day. The exact gap between those incidents is not clear. Oscar claimed that he spoke to the woman to ask directions, but her TV was up very loud, and their conversation was garbled. We attempted to contact that witness for clarification, but she died in a kitchen fire in 1968 while visiting her parents. This is a very abbreviated summary of the information we have in that conviction. Again, we're not making any statement regarding the guilt, just trying to relay information we've received from an original source. It's also important to remember that even if Oscar did attack the girl in the 1965 case, it would not negate his alibi or the lack of physical evidence in Donna's case. Another reason we brought up the 1965 case is to mention the officers involved. These included Byrd, Barnes, and Ferris, the three TCSO officers in charge of the investigation in Donna's case. They knew Oscar, so it makes all of the different stories about not knowing who owned the invoice book seem particularly insincere and suspicious. Join us for Episode 7 to discuss Oscar's defense, both the evidence presented at trial and the evidence the jury never got to hear.